Welcome to the T-Hud Podcast. I'm Moby. I'm Leland Steele. And I'm Liz. Yes, listener, we have another guest this month. We are blessed to have finally found someone from the local film industry, actress, producer at times of sorts, uh, Liz, from the Hollywood North, to guide us a little bit through uh, the SAG strike and, you know, just... uh, what the heck happened there and what the heck is still going on. Uh, and then we're going to, you know, carrying off last month, we've got a second segment, a little bit of D&D that uh, is good. Kind of give you a full 360 degree picture of, um, you know, we were discussing last month, uh, Baldur's Gate 3. And um, now we're going to go into some pen and paper D&D uh, player making as well. So, yeah, Liz, uh, I'm sure we're going to talk more, but uh, briefly tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yes, um, thank you so much for uh, hosting and allowing me to be a part of this episode. It's really exciting for me. This is my first time doing any podcast of any sort, so I'm just really grateful and I'm glad you guys are just a bunch of local guys who just love chatting about pop culture and everything that's fun and good in the world. You know, I, I have the same mindset and I made it my career. So um, yes, I've uh, been a part-time performer on and off in the Vancouver film industry since I was a teenager. So uh, I've been in and out since 2009. Just so excited about the fact that Vancouver and the greater Vancouver area had the infrastructure to be a North Hollywood hub. So, you know, I was uh, acting quite a bit. And in the past four or five years, I've been working, luckily, in production for uh, post-production for some of the studios that we're going to chat about, uh, Netflix and Warner and Disney. So, uh, you know, I do have a lot of insight into that part of the world here in Vancouver. And I'm just really excited to be here and to share everything that I've witnessed and experienced, especially during this crazy time. That is the, uh, the strikes. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, the pleasure is ours. Uh, we're just so happy we got someone of your quality um, to, you know, explain and try to guide us through the situation a bit. With that said, let's start with a little fun. Let's uh, go into our banter segment to start here. Some random news and tidbits we want to discuss. Uh, Leland, you got something to throw out there. Yeah. Uh, I know we kind of, I think it was a couple episodes episodes ago, when Ahsoka was first airing, we we briefly touched on it. Now the finale has come out a, f- a few days ago as of recording this episode. And uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about it. I know, Moby, you're generally a, f- a fan of the series, right? Generally, yes, though it's aging like wine filled with botulism in my mind. Oh, as you're thinking back? As I'm thinking about it, watching, you know... YouTubers talk about it and dissect the themes and what happened, could have happened, didn't happen. And um, I don't think I'm going to dislike it, but it it's probably going to be like a B minus. Hmm. That That's basically where I'm thinking of it right now. B, B to B minus. What about you? I, I probably somewhere around uh, around that. I, I really uh, enjoyed it. I'm, I'm a fan of all of the characters uh, in in the this continuation of Rebels, essentially. Uh, Liz, are you a Star Wars fan? I am. I have worked on a Star Wars project, and Ashoka specifically. Um, I have some friends who worked on it, but I will say it, it is on the top of my list to actually watch 
and sit down and 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 speak about. Um, I haven't had the time to do that, but I, I have seen okay. clips just because of uh, the fact that our studio, one of the studios I was working with, did work on it. So I, I have seen bits and pieces of it. But yes, please go on. <laughs> okay, no, no, no spoilers. Okay, <laughs> no spoilers okay. then. Especially for you know, listener who may may or may not have uh, watched all of it uh, as well. I think my overall takeaway on it was there was a lot of cool stuff interspersed with kind of nothing. Yeah. Like there's a, there's a lot of really great moments and cool moments in it. Like I, I was just thinking even in the finale with um, the, the night sisters and stuff, how, how they're finally, I don't, I guess not finally utilized, but like, they're kind of like actually utilized to, you know, it seems like their full capability uh, against, against the heroes. And it was really cool. I thought it was dope as hell. Although there's uh some sequences where just the fact that they have laser swords kind of still makes too many things is not as threatening as they should be. Uh, you know, where if it was like, if it wasn't something that was like PG or PG-13, the situation would be vastly different because they have lasers, so like they have lightsabers, you know, that kind of stuff. But Yeah, I mean, at this point, there's basically no difference between... Uh, well, I don't know why you're calling them laser swords, a lightsaber. Well, okay. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Like, I think a listener knows what a lightsaber is. But I mean, like, the, the, the level of danger from a lightsaber now is about the same as, like, the snake uh, state knife in your drawer that you forgot was there and accidentally, like, pricked <laughs> your finger on. It's like, oh, wow, that bled for five minutes. Okay, I'm fine. Whereas lightsabers prior to this show and that is one of my small problems with it liz is probably like rolling her eyes at us thinking we're like nitpicking like the biggest nerds who grew up in the 1990s not necessarily okay you can we like to be (laughs) we like to be self-depreciating here (laughs) we're just reflecting reality yeah i i i agree with your overall sentiment though leland i feel like the writers for this show got into a room and they're like what are we doing next for star wars overall and it's like, hey, we're going to do this five-year track of stories. Okay, well, what are we going to do with Ahsoka? Well, let's just put all the pieces in the spots where they need to be to start the rest of this arc. And that's what I felt. Without giving spoilers, I just felt like, as you said, there were some great moments. But most of all, we just moved some pieces to different planets and areas. And nothing big happened. There were no big revelations. I mean, frankly, it's almost tough to spoil the show when I think about it. Certainly characters that you don't really see in the trailer appear. But, I mean, they were using the tr- the footage from the trailers until the last moments of the last episode of this season. That's how little they were hiding what was going to actually happen. And I don't mind things being predictable, but I just felt like if they're predictable, they have to still predictably go somewhere, which this season did not. So it's about what I can say without being too spoilery. I mean, I, I think the way, you know, the, the the finale ended and with, you know, a season two still being ambiguous, whether or not it's actually going to happen or whether or not these events are going to roll into this Mandalorian Ahsoka movie that's supposed to come, right? Like, I don't know. I don't know what, what they're going to do with it. I think you're you're right. It did, it did feel like a lot of, almost like busy work is kind of how this series, yep, 100%. This series felt a little bit, even though like the entirety of it 
is is fan service though really like which is awesome to see and i think again those moments that you know that that they wanted to be impactful i felt they were impactful at least for me and, and again i'm not like a diehard star wars fan or at least i will continue to say that i'm not despite <laughs> perhaps voicing opinions to the contrary but <laughs> uh but also like i mean a lot of the threads in season one they just i mean what are they really going to do with them in a potential season two especially with um the actor that plays Balin skull ray stevenson passing away in may of this year yeah i mean he's a great he's such a good character he's such a good part of that of this of the first season and almost feels like he was like underused but maybe if he was used a little more it would have been too much so i i don't know but it's tough to say what's gonna happen next but um if there's a season two i mean i'll definitely watch it so yeah, me too. I mean, hope springs eternal. I hope by that point they're actually <laughs> making big moves going somewhere. But yeah, without getting more into, you know, specific story or character beats, I think that's all I can say on the topic at this moment. But we definitely got to review it, like maybe next month or something. Yeah, I'd be down for that. Um, I guess I'll throw in my first banter here. I've kind of got two. One is, well, I guess they're not big either of them but uh leland i know for you i posted the thanksgiving trailer by eli roth did you watch it <laughs> yes yeah okay uh liz are you a fan of quentin tarantino robert rodriguez especially the grindhouse movies that came out around 2009 i am a huge fan of quentin tarantino i um one of my favorite movies is actually from dusk to dawn yes so nice. you know I, I like the earlier tarantino stuff but I feel like I've been a fan throughout his career and, you know, even up to uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Just, I, yeah, I have an unbiased um, love for Tarantino movies. So, yes, consider myself a fan. <laughs> You're welcome here then. My point was, so here's the thing. So when the actual Grindhouse double feature came out, which I could have been 2007, I think, not 2009. I think 2009 was like, Hobo with a Shotgun and Black Dynamite, which came later. But I think the actual original Grindhouse double feature, which was Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez, was 2007. Now, when that came out, those movies came with a bunch of fake trailers. And some of them, like Hobo with a Shotgun, were made into actual full-length movies. And now, many, many years later, one of those trailers was Thanksgiving. Probably my favorite trailer of all the fakes. And so just a couple days ago, Eli Roth released the first trailer for the Thanksgiving horror movie. The problem is that the silliness, the fun, the humor that was in the original trailer seems to be replaced by more or less like a very straight horror flick. And I don't like it, Leland. I don't like <laughs> the vibe. What, what about you? That's really my point. That was my first impression uh, watching the trailer is like, I, I like, cause I, I wanted to laugh watching the trailer like I did watching the fake trailer in the double feature, right? In the double right. feature of Planet Terror and, and Death Proof. Um, <laughs> I wanted to laugh at it. I wanted it to be campy. I wanted it to be stupid, uh, but it does feel like, like this is, they're taking it like way more serious than what we probably, maybe you and I would like Moby, but. Yeah, I mean, I think we're pretty far on the silliness side, given the original trailer and what we were laughing mm -hmm. at. I mean, I'll still see it. I'll just be sad if it's so serious. I want to say, like, the Joker, why so serious? 
Why did you decide to make this a serious movie? Come on. Just keep it with the original vibe. I mean, maybe it's just maybe it's just too late to to try to get a green light with the original vibe, you know? Like maybe that just Yeah. It's kind of over that fad is past and it's it's over with now. I mean, it's more than a decade since the last of those, you know, Grindhouse-esque movies were even released, so. It'd be a good question for Eli Roth. Too bad we don't have him on speed dial yet. Maybe <laughs> well, maybe Liz knows him. <laughs> maybe Liz knows him. You never know. <laughs> one day, one day. <laughs> that was really my only comment on, on you know, Thanksgiving. So, um, Liz, did you happen to bring anything for the banter segment? Uh, no, I was, I was open ears, and um, I'm glad you brought up Tarantino. I do know he's uh, he's producing what he says is his last project. Yeah, I mean, the last time I, I, I caught up on that, there was not that much information. But um, apparently it's something along the lines of Star Trek Four. I, I, I haven't followed along with Quentin Tarantino in a while. So. Yeah, he's definitely saying, and he's been consistent, that he's doing one more movie. And I did hear originally he wanted to do uh, a Star Trek, which really excited me. But... I have heard rumors, so it's not confirmed, that he's going to go back and do a Western. And I'm just kind of like... Why? You know, okay, <laughs> but he's tackled that genre so many times right? in his limited filmography. I, like, even for his sake, would he not want to go out trying something different and bold? Instead of just, like, Western, Western, <laughs> like, story set in California, Hollywood, Western. It's just, that, that's his yeah. late career. That's fair. That's fair. He's put so much undue pressure, sure, assuredly, on himself by saying, this is it. Last one. It's going to be a banger. You know what I mean? Like, maybe he's just falling back on what he believes he can make the best movie, you know, the parameters within that he's setting for himself. So maybe that has something to do with it. But I, I agree. I think um, uh, a sci-fi would be, a sci-fi movie of any kind of sort would be really cool. And I would be super interested in seeing but yeah, immediately hearing that it's another Tarantino Western, it was like, okay, I'll, I'll see it when I see it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, really, what other choice do you have? Like, I'll see everything he makes and I'll buy everything he makes because it's all good. But yeah, I, I would, I hope that rumor is incorrect. I, I hope, like, I don't care, do a video about deep sea fishing or something like that. It's just like, do something different. <laughs> That's my hope. <laughs> DC Vision. I was like trying to think of something. I'm like, random, random. Think of the most random pretense for a movie. And that's the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> Leland, do you have anything else for the, the banter there? That is all I have. Okay. The only other thing I've got, Leland, are you part of the Wingspan beta test by any chance? No. Um. So Liz, the backstory here is uh, Leland taught me to play a board game, which ended up being one of my favorite board games called Wingspan you've ever heard of it collecting a bunch of birds and there's different ways they get you points and it's actually got a really good uh, pc game version so i can just pick it up and have a game versus the computer at 2 a.m if i want i play the hell out of it uh so they're doing a beta test for their final expansion and it actually changes a lot like leland have you played oceana as a board game the oceana expansion or no uh, I don't think I have. Off the top of my head, I, I don't know. Okay. It's interesting because it introduces new dice and they have basically a wild card resource on it called Nectar. 
And what's cool about nectar is it's like a wild card. It, it substitutes for any other food you need to buy birds, but you have to use it by the end of a round or else it all gets wiped out. So like you can collect five nectar, but you got to spend it in like the five turns before your round ends or, you know, it just, it just gets flushed down the toilet. Um, and it also, how much nectar you spend plays into points at the end of the game, which I like as well. But I hear that's d- divisive. Like my friend Joe, he hates it. He really doesn't like nectar at all. Okay. Even though he's part of the beta test. So. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I mean, uh, so I re- reminding me what was in that expansion. I have played with that expansion. And I think that was probably the second time I played Wingspan was probably with all of the expansions up to and included uh, Oceana. Uh, because again, with with um, Emma's Emma's family loves Wingspan. You know her parents play it constantly, and that was one of the numerous times that I played with them. And they have everything for it because they're such big fans. I li- I thought it was cool. I I mean I think the the it was it's enough. It's like not too much to keep the game still kind of entry to intermediate level, right? For new people that may not be familiar with board games in general. Like I'm not sure what uh, how what Liz's familiarity with the kind of tabletop gaming scene is. Uh, but, you know, everyone says that Wingspan is a great introductory one for, for people that aren't familiar with maybe some of the mechanisms uh, with how, how the, the, you know, again, like you say, collecting the b- birds and spending the resources. So I think it's enough for people that really love the game to spice it up, but not so much where it becomes overbearing to be able to play with those extra parts for, for people that are newer to the, to the hobby. Yeah, I don't want to harp on that too much because that's kind of not really a shared activity. I didn't I didn't think it would be, but I thought I'd bring it up just because I was burying some time in it the last uh, half week or so there. Yeah, so I mean, if if we want, if that's kind of the end, we might as well jump into our big first segment here. Let's do it. All right, so it's time for movie musing segment. Uh, this time, the SAG strikeout. So, yeah, I mean, the primary reason why we we tried and successfully found someone like Liz to have on the show is we really want to understand what went on and what effects short, medium, long term the SAG strike had. I'll start, Liz. Is that even the correct term for it? Because SAG is Screen Actors Guild, but they're striking and then the writers are striking. And then I think I heard... The writers are back, but the actors might not be. So can you just, um, to start, maybe just let us know where things are? Yeah, I mean, I'm. that's why I was really happy to jump on board because um, I represent the acting, you know, obviously in, in Canada, it's a pretty separate issue, but overall, it's pretty woven in. Um, it affected us greatly in Vancouver, for sure just because we do have a lot of SAG projects that come up here. But it, it's uh, very much, it, it was a double strike. So both writers, the writers went first on May 2nd. Um, and then the actors in the US, you know, there's a, for the writers, there's WJ West and East. So all writers, whether they be in New York and LA, they, you know, they were proposed a deal from the AMTPTP. And it was not up to par as to what they were expecting for the uh, future of their careers and the collective labor um, union 
that is the WGA. And I think it was really reflective because obviously it's a domino effect when the writers are the um, are ahead of the pipeline from actors. So I, a lot of their contract requests from the WGA mirrored exactly what the actors were needing, the SAG actors were needing. So we have common themes like uh, streaming residuals and AI that were major issues, especially, you know, everyone kind of knows how the economy is doing in this time and age in 2023 and post-pandemic. So it was pretty much a smorgasbord of issues that um, led to this economic movement. I, I consider it a economic movement and revolution just because of how things were swaying in the favor of studios and, and not the artists. So that was the underlying drive to these strikes. Um, just the fact that the disparity was, was just growing so much and so vastly that the artists themselves weren't getting pocketed the compensation that they deserved. And, you know, I was, I was a part of that. Um, you know, obviously I'm not in the U.S. I'm a Canadian filmmaker and a Canadian performer, but you just realize the ripple effect that it does have. It affects everyone who makes films, who makes films on an international stage. And there are a lot of factors that led to it. Um, and it was just, I would say, just bad timing for uh, the artists, but it was also way overdue that this needed to happen. Like the contracts kind of get re-upped every three or four years, right? So like when you say this is kind of, like this could happen like six, seven, eight years ago, potentially, right? Like, so a long time coming makes makes a lot of sense. But also, it seems like when you, you know, the, the, the cut the costs kind of starting at the head of the pipeline, like you're saying with the writers, like the end product, like everyone notices the end product suffering because of it too, right? Like you say, exactly the, the ripple effect. It's, it affects everybody in the industry and it affects everybody that consumes the, the product created by the industry, right? Like it just doesn't go unnoticed. Like nobody's getting away with any of this shit that was getting pulled, right? Oh, yeah. Yes, and that was a big that was a big realization to simply put. People were realizing, you know, I work in a I was full-time in post-production. That's been my life for the past 4 or 5 years, including during COVID. So when um we realized, you know, on the post-production end, there's I don't think a lot of a lot of people know how hard it is to make a film, but there is a lot of heart and soul that goes into it and I don't think people realize like the one to three years where a production is actually being filmed and edited and marketed and put into post-production, like what goes on there. I don't think the studio heads even knew what it takes to do that. And the, you know, the, on, on the labor end, just the, the time and, and capacity that was, that was needed from us filmmakers. Um, and we didn't realize it ourselves, I think. You know, I was working 10 or 14 hours on some projects for, for Netflix and uh, Disney and Warner. And uh, I thought I was just, you know, this was just the life that I chose, you know. And I always knew that the compensation could possibly be better for me, but I didn't realize there were a ton of other filmmakers that were feeling the same way. So we get to this point where it's post-pandemic, you know, everyone kind of 
had time to reflect and introspect and realize what exactly, what are they we doing with our lives and what is our value in the profession that we have? You know, there, there were so many shifts in so many sectors during COVID and film is not, you know, is not any different. Um, we are a labor union, us filmmakers. And I think it's just, you know, the general public just is starting to realize how it's actually not too gra- glamorized. It's um, a lot of hard work. And, you know, we want to get paid accordingly because we spend a lot of our lives, majority of our years and, and time away from our family and friends making these films. And I think we realized with the, the rate of inflation that was going on in the greater e- economy that we weren't able to catch up to what exactly what was expected. So here comes the strikes, you know, a, a new labor and a contract negotiation. It was just the timing of, you know, we've had enough of, uh, you know, not getting fair compensation for the con- contributions that the studios are pocketing. So that's the real reason why all of this was happening. And that was a source in the, the beginning of what was happening in the, the earlier, earlier this year uh, that began the strikes. Yeah. And this discussion actually is heading right in the direction where I wanted to, to start, which is, Liz, if you can bring us to some of these underlying factors that have been building over the past few years or contracts. Um, I know you mentioned AI and fair work for fair pay. What were some of the grievances that the unions had with the studio bosses at the start of this? Well, I, I've been trying myself personally to figure out what the studio heads have been thinking as someone who works in, you know, one of the like key labor production positions, you know, I, I'm not a producer, but I'm a production coordinator. So it's like uh, maybe like four rings below a producer. But even, at, even then, you know, there was a lot of um, demand that was coming from my position. So, you know, I was just uh, doing my best to make the films um, that I was assigned to run smoothly and for it to look perfect and uh, to make sure that the client and the directors and the art director were getting the, the product and the outcome that they needed. And I think what we, we the labor and we the artists weren't a part of was the um, decision making and the economics of everything. Because in the beginning of 2023, we, the, the studios already had this cost cutting mentality. You know, I had worked with Disney and I was reading the news earlier this year about the, the cost, the, the labor that they were cutting and the fact that they were letting go a lot of their, their center employees. You know, I wasn't, I was a contractor for Disney, but, you know, obviously Disney has a lot of employees. So they are already cutting back just because the, the state of the economy. And we were seeing it with other sectors like, tech and um you know other you know i i i was pretty much in an, an administrative role like i know other administrators in a variety of sectors who were laid off just because you know they were again like closer to the bottom ring of the of, of the labor that was outputting the content for, for the companies so i think what really started was this post-pandemic pendulum swing of, of producing content like um studios were trying to churn out a ton of content during the pandemic just because obviously the audience we were watching more content because we were home so 
a lot of me and my friends, uh, 2021, 2022, we were working a lot. There was a lot of work out there just because of the supply and the demand. From I, I was listening to this deadline, a podcast from Deadline. It was uh, week 11 of the strike, and they were talking to the investors of, of that are a part of these companies, not the studio heads per se, but you know they're active in making sure these companies like Disney and Netflix, you know, like whether they be chair people or major investors, they were just trying to make sure that they were profitable. So then there was this big issue of, uh, of, of pricing. You know, Netflix is a great example of, uh, we all know that they're trying to change, they're constantly changing their pricing tiers and, a lot of people, you know, are either unimpressed with it or they understand it, but it just goes to show that they're in this mentality of like, they're not really sure what the economic model is for themselves. Like they're putting a lot of money into production, you know, like a uh, Stranger Things, for example, like each episode, I believe costs $30 million. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yes. I'm not surprised. Like it's, a fan- it's one of my favorite shows, but they spend a lot of money producing content. So I think, you know, once that's, this is Netflix is a big example, but you see, you know, the Disney plus and Paramount plus or any other streaming platform, Peacock, they have been trying to catch up to Netflix just because of the revenue stream that, you know, their content is sometimes on Netflix. They're trying to catch up, but it's proven to be a very difficult business model to be profitable. So this is where the studio heads are, this is where their mindset is. Like, I've been trying hard to understand where they're coming from. And it just, it's so clear now that, you know, they too are having a, a problem with, with their bottom line. But, you know, as, as people who are in labor and who are artists, it's, it, we have a different lifestyle and we have a different expectation. We just want to get paid a living wage. Right. You know, as someone who's a junior, junior production person, it took me at least two to three years to make that living wage. It, you know, initially when I started as an entry level production coordinator, I was getting paid pennies and I was still living with my parents and trying to pay off my student debt. And a lot of these, you know, I'm, I'm focusing more on the writer because they started first, but you know, these are young writers who are living in New York and LA and uh, they literally can't afford to pay their apartments. And a big issue was that for SAG specifically, I think 80% of the guild, they were um, not making even $26,000 a year to cover their health insurance. So it's become this economic warfare that nobody wants. Absolutely no one wants, but it's just kind of the state of the world right now. Like we've just the economy is so fragile that, you know, these two sides were not seeing eye to eye. Yeah, it's uh, it's bad all around. I mean, Leland and I can only speak as consumers of the media, but I mean, it's tough for us as well when you've got Netflix and virtually all streaming services. And it seems like almost yearly they're jacking up prices by, you know, two dollars a month. I could work it out, but I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say my Netflix has gone up 50, 60 percent since I got it. And I was a I was not an early adopter. I think I probably only got Netflix shortly before the pandemic, to be honest. And um, so maybe four or five years ago. And I think there's been that, I'd probably ballpark it at 60% increase, but also less content. 
which is really weird. I was on Netflix yesterday and they've got new labels for like leaving soon. And the amount of content that was labeled as leaving soon was, I would use the term scarily noticeable. I was like, oh my goodness, they're about to, there's rumors Netflix is going to jack up my pricing again. And all this cool stuff is leaving a bunch of the science fiction stuff like Star Trek, I think is that, you know, Paramount Plus wanted it. But regardless, I liked watching that on Netflix. That's all gone. Star Wars has gone to Disney Plus. So, I mean, I don't want to harp on the consumer approach to this too much, but it does show that, yeah, it seems like it's not financially viable right now, these streaming services. I, my opinion of it is the business model is so tumultuous because nobody, I don't know if any of these uh, streaming services are realizing just how limited their revenue pool is. And now with so many more of them, we've talked so many times on the show about just how saturated streaming platforms are now. Uh, just There's just so many and they're all drawing from the same limited pool. And there just isn't, there can't be enough revenue for all of them to succeed like Netflix has for the last 15 years, right? And even then, of course, we're like, everyone's in decline. Netflix has been hemorrhaging uh, memberships you know, for the last year and a half. So, yeah. Yep. That's, that's accurate. I want to key in a bit, Liz, on the whole AI component, the AI grievance that seemed like a big part of the strike. So tell me what the studios wanted from an AI perspective and what were the actors fighting for? It's simply put, the studios were really fighting for, for the use of AI to use it more because of the fact that, you know, if you think of, I, I, I know this very well now being in production, that filmmaking is, is very much a, you know, it's, it's like a, it's like a supply chain. It's like a, it's like a factory in itself. You know, we have a, we have pipelines, we have parts of production, we have a start and an end. So, what the studios are really pushing for with AI was to utilize it to match this new kind of mentality of simply put, just churning out as much content possible to compete with one another. I, Leland, you touched on that, but there's so many now. And essentially, they're all like Netflix. They're all pretty much taken up a technology company business model which is very contradictory to the filmmaking process because, you know, the filmmaking process is at least one to three years. It's a very creative process, even if it is very monetized and, and simplified to be pretty much easier for these studios. So they're thinking of efficiency on their end. But then from an actor's perspective uh, and a writer's perspective, it's completely, it's, a, it's pretty much the enemy to our careers and to our livelihoods because there's no government regulations at the moment that protect us workers from it. And I feel like, yes, this is going to be a topic across many industries. So, I mean, you know, we have this very contradictory, opposing mentality with AI, with the people that control and the people that make. And it just became this 
very heightened topic in the past year with the writers. They really just wanted to protect themselves from AI so that AI is not credited for writing a script, but just so that AI is used as a tool to not replace their share and their stakes and and their jobs. You know, jobs is going to be the big underlying issue because AI in many sectors can potentially replace jobs. You know, there's a big conversation about, for the actor side, misappropriation of the use of AI. You know, I was, I was listening to a podcast and they mentioned this example of, you know, Bela Lugosi and, and he's, he's Dracula. He's the original Dracula from the 1940s. Um, this costume designer, for example, made a, a mask that resembled Bela Lugosi. And in the 1940s, he had just passed away. So his estate, they instigated a lawsuit against this costume company just because of the fact that they use a likelihood, likeliness of, of his face, you know, moments after his death. And uh, uh, the Lugosi family ultimately won just because of this misappropriation of use and the timing and everything being sensitive at the time. But I think this is where we're at in terms of uh, creators and, and content makers. It's There's just so much protection and so much bureaucracy that um, we weren't aware of initially. But, you know, these studios, they have all of the resources in the world to actually do these things. So we, as artists, just kind of want to protect ourselves to save our jobs and make sure that, you know, we're at least compensated for when that happens. Right. And as you say, that's not the only, in, obviously, you know, you're not the only industry that's getting affected. Like this is, if, to me, I look at it as it's, it's simply, you can boil it down to being like automation. And automation has been a huge thing for decades and decades across all industries. I mean, look at the automotive industry, factory workers, et cetera, et cetera, right? And now it's just like the technology, this is just like the next step of automation. And with this next step in technology, it can affect more sectors. There's a big thing going on in the tabletop uh, hobby about AI art being utilized in board games that are being produced. And a number of companies, uh, Stronghold Games being one of them, of launching uh, a recent Kickstarter uh, for another version of Terraforming Mars using AI art. And it, they're catching a lot of flack for it. And platforms like Kickstarter, uh, like as of uh, last month, September of this year, had announced that they have no intention of banning or trying to restrict projects that may or may not utilize AI in whatever, whatever the offering might be. It's just everywhere. It's just so prevalent now. It's becoming more and more prevalent. And I think it's, it's <laughs> without uh, something like an event like this, like a strike like this in, in, in any given sector or the people that are even able to take those steps to protect themselves without that opportunity, I think it's, it can very easily just kind of run rampant. I have a casual friend who I spoke to this past February. So, you know, before the strike occurred, but as we were kind of thinking it was going to occur. Um, and she was an extra and she basically made a big part of her career being an extra on Grey's Anatomy um, because that show went on for a long time. And how she put it to me is like, if the studio heads got exactly what they wanted from AI, instead of her having a stable job for all these years, you know, doing all this thankless work, like being literally a shadow that walks in front of the camera as the two main characters in the background. 
she showed me all these scenes she was in, but she said like they would just have scanned her, made an AI version of her, paid her for a day or two, and then, you know, just use the AI version of her for the rest of the series. And she's like, I would not have had a job, essentially, if they gotten away with that. Right. So to me, that that was super serious. And it's like, oh, yeah, you're going to you're going to kill, as you put it, Liz, those junior juniors at the bottom, including in acting, because, you know, they're going to be paid for a day of work when before they would get weeks, if not months of work out of it. And that's just not sustainable. So we've had the strike, Liz, and now you can fill us in on what's happening now. So I believe I believe, you know, the writers have said they're coming back. Where where are the actors currently? So the actors are um, as of this week. So October 2nd was when actors started to open up the floor again. The studio is also open up the floor with them. It's looking very similar to the trajectory of the writers negotiations that happened two weeks ago, where after months and months of, of PR and knowing, you know, the, the studios know where, where the writers and the actors are in their headspace. And the public has been siding with the artist very, you know, unanimously. The studios are in this place where, because initially they had all the resources to meet all the demands. It's pretty, it's pretty clear that they did, they were able to make the requests of these actors and writers happen pretty much right away. But it's, 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 there's a structure that they did not want to break in order to do that just because of the, the collateral that would happen, that it would, it would mean for their, you know, their careers, their reputation and their, their pockets. So, you know, the, the actors are just like the writers were two weeks ago going back and forth on negotiations. There's been publications of what the AMPTP are offering. And, you know, it's very laid out visually as to what the artists, whether it be the writers or actors, you know, how they respond to that. And it's, from what I've been seeing, it's, it's very clear that the artists are not backing down. Uh, it worked for the writers. You know, they have their AI protections. I think... I'm pretty sure um, that one of the the key um, outcomes of the writers' negotiations were that you know they now have AI protections and AI cannot be credited for scripts that are published by AI. So this puts um, you know the studios in a very tough place because, like I said, they were really really betting on AI for efficiency. So this throws away their business plan for the next two to five years out the window. But then here comes the actors as well with kind of the same mentality. You know, their two main subjects or or areas that they're fighting for are also residuals and AI, just like the writers. But I think for the long-term perspective, AI is significantly more important just because of just like your, your, your friend who's an extra, you know, not every actor is Cillian Murphy. Not every actor is Margot Robbie. You know, not every actor is Michael B. Jordan. There are so many, a majority of actors are the ones who surround those main characters and those, those, those uh, key A-list actors. So 
they need to be fairly compensated as well. And, you know, the studios have been neglecting the fact that they're a huge part of the production process. So I, it's lovely and very empowering to see, you know, even the, the, the actors with a bigger platform finally stepping up for the, the actors who surround Meredith Grey, who surround Patrick Dempsey and so on and so forth. Uh, so yeah, like the actors are in this place now where they are collectively as a union, as a, a bonded team fighting for the livelihood of everyone in their profession, whether they be making millions of dollars per project or just hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars. So I think the fact that, you know, they started negotiations again on Monday, it's going into the next week. I don't really read the sort, like believe the sources when they're all of them are saying, you know, it's, it's been good and it's been positive. Everyone has a good head on their shoulders. You never really know unless you're, you're in the negotiation room. So yeah, I feel like the outcome will be similar to the writer's strike where they get almost everything that they asked for from the original request. But, you know, I think the behemoth of the actor, the huge difference is, you know, with writers, they can stockpile scripts. Performance is a completely different field. It's, it's very direct. Like you have to perform and the out, the, you know, you churn out your end product or content right after. So I think the, the reason why it might go a little bit or slightly longer is the fact that the process is a bit different for the performer. You know, hopefully it'll just take a week or two. Because the writers have very much expressed their solidarity for the actor. If the actors don't get what they want, you know, it's going to be back to square one. So that's where they're all at. No, that's 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 actually kind of refreshing teamwork to see that between people involved in the process. Leland, before I move on to discussing the short, you know, medium, long-term future of what's going on here, do you have any other questions, Leland, about the present or the past? of this situation? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think Liz, you've done an incredible job of laying it out uh, for us and uh, I'm sure what are our really layman's terms. So we, <laughs> we can kind of a brief overview, but no, no, I think uh, uh, I'm, I'm excited. I'm very interested about like future ramifications for sure. Yeah. So on that and Liz, you've, you've talked, you've done a good job of painting the industry as, as like almost like an organization or like a steamroller that needs to pick up the supply chain and start, you know, moving like this behemoth. So let's assume, let's just round it off and say like end of October, even though three weeks might actually be a long time. Let's say end of October, the actors sign, we're going back into production. How long, given your experience, do you think it'll take a lot of these A-list shows on like Netflix or Disney Plus or Paramount to get back into production with new seasons, new shows? Are, are we talking like filming starting in December 2023? Or are we talking like filming starting April 2024? I would say uh, more likely December 2023, just because there was so much money put into it. Production is, is very, very expensive. You know, I was working on a project and let go. And I know for a fact that that was a very was a harsh outcome or a harsh, like, uh, hindrance to this project. Just because, you know, filmmaking, it, it requires a lot of people. It requires a lot of resources and time. And 
it's hard to even sometimes get a meeting together with these these uh, showrunners. So I know that, and I, from what I know, even this past week, they're trying to get stuff back off the ground. So it's just a matter of, you know, like, because writers and actors are two different entities, two different aspects of the production. So the fact that the writers are back up, you know, a lot of writers include showrunners and directors and producers, actually, that aren't a part of the AMPTP, just individual artists who make movies. So I know they're itching to go back to work right away. Like everyone's annoyed and broke and hungry. <laughs> it's, not, it's not, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad out there. Um, you know, like, especially with this economy. Oh my goodness. Like we all just kind of want to go back to work. So yeah, like things are slowly, for me personally, things are ramping up again. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, taking my baby steps to see Hey, after the, I haven't been working for almost four months now. Like how, how do I come out of, of this? Like, what did I learn this summer? And how do I want to change the issues that I had with being a part of the crew? It's a lot. So I think, yeah, like everyone's just kind of getting their ish together <laughs> to put simply <laughs> because we all just kind of got the rug ripped under our feet. And, um, you know, across the board, I know people from all aspects of filmmaking, writers, directors, actors, visual effects artists, and so on and so forth. And we're all collectively struggling. <laughs> so all we want to do is get back to work. And, you know, like it's, it's looking optimistic. You know, I know so many people who are going back to projects. But the next question is, what are the actors going to do? Because that's another thing in itself. Like the writer's strike has kind of balanced itself out in terms of you know they're they're in a transition phase and i feel like that transition phase will only last a few months like it won't take the whole five months that the strike happened but maybe half of that so in the new year there's probably going to be a lot of production i have a feeling there's going to be a lot of sway towards independent projects i know a lot of my friends are itching for that because it's it's just a different feel in itself and there's a, a more creative input but yeah, like in terms of yeah, networks, you know, they've already pushed a lot of productions into the new year. Well, I mean, how 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 many different projects were, you know, starting in the middle of or nearly complete when the strike happened, right? Like there's got to be a myriad of, of things that are just in limbo. Not even, I mean, we're just kind of really just talking about starting new projects, right? You know, yeah, there has exactly. to be so much that are just waiting to be completed too. I'm sure those are going to be the first ones going, you know, come, come si signing these kind the last signature. <laughs> Bam, all right. Let's get this shit going. Right. Eggs. That's like it's very accurate. Cause it's like, there's money on the line and that's why yeah, everyone yeah. was, I mean, there's money spent. Yeah. There's money being wasted. Right. Like, yeah. Oh, lots of money wasted. You know, when you stop a project, that's you're, you're essentially paying for that gap too. Because, you know, in an art form like filmmaking, there's continuity and there's, you can't just hire someone else with the brain work, the brains and the, the, the creative talent that the last person was doing. It's, it doesn't really work that way. Like you're starting from scratch, essentially. And that's, I think that's what we're seeing with these projects starting back up. You're starting essentially from scratch. It's a little bit tragic, but I guess, you know, if you're strong enough to stay in the game, then you will probably succeed, but we really don't know at this point. It's only been a week. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, I guess for the writers too, like it's not, 
like not every writer's job also is dependent on an actor, right? I mean, we have the writers for like late night talk shows and, and, you know, daytime TV um, and that kind of stuff. So I guess some, some of them will be able to get back to work, I suppose. But I guess, like you say, depending on how it goes with the actors, I mean, potential for another, the writers to go back on strike for, to, to back up the actors potentially. Like I, that's a very worst case scenario. Right, you know, right. but I think they've realized, uh, you know, how powerful this this movement has been. You know, we we were talking about talk shows. You know, we saw what happened with uh, Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher. Right. Just the major backlash that their careers and and their their shows that they've been working really hard for for years have taken just in a snap. So, um, you know, I feel like there has been a wake up call in terms of these. Because again, these these studio heads are they have more of a tech company mentality than a a studio exec that that would have been you know like thirty years ago. You think of Fox Studios and Paramount; they had a completely business, business, different business model. But these streamers are operating on their own thing, and that's been the issue, and that's the reason why there's this disparity. I I really feel like they will oblige to the actor's request because of what they've seen and you know in the u.s it's part it's cross party lines like everyone's on side with the labor unions because again it's it's worldwide in canada we had the government workers you know fighting for their labor we had the port right now in the u.s we have uh, the, the automobile workers fighting for their their livelihood so it's um it's a it's a trend that i know the studios execs are recognizing and yeah, I think that it'll be successful for the actors. You know, I will say that the writers won big with the the deal that they got. And it's only a matter of time that the actors get the same. Yeah, I think a really good point you brought up, which I thought of it, but I, you know, I, I for whatever reason, I didn't, you know, articulate it like you did. But the fact that the public was very much on the sides of the actors and the writers and with the public being on the side, that essentially means the public's willing to either wait out the strike, which they did. But I also think like the studio directors, the people that run Netflix, Paramount, et cetera, Peacock, they're going, well, we have less content coming out. We're going to lose a bunch of the subscribers we have if we don't get back to work here. And these subscribers are on the side of the people that we're keeping on strike. So at that point, in my opinion, they have zero leverage. And, you know, what What are you going to do? You either just lose more money or you buck up, admit you're wrong and go back to work. It's interesting what you said about Drew Barrymore too. I mean, from what I've seen, I like her as a person. She seems bubbly and kind, but when she tried to keep her show going, oh boy, like you said, that's yeah. going to have ramifications for her career for the next decade or two. That's true. Right? Like she's persona non grata might be too strong of a term, but definitely I'm sure people are going to look down on her. And I'm pretty sure a tearful interview at some point on 60 minutes is coming up as Drew yeah. Barrymore tries to uh, <laughs> salvage this. Unfortunately, one of the things I've thought about is as a medium term consequence, which isn't good. I think that after the money, these streaming services and studios have lost that they're not going to hike up the monthly rate of streaming now, 
But once that avalanche of content starts being released in spring of 2024, that's when I think they're going to make excuses to jack up price, you know, two, three dollars a month pretty quick saying, oh, we've got all this new content. Oh, you know, like a service fee. We've we've got to keep up with the Joneses. Maybe even blame the writers and actors a little bit. I hope they don't do that. But basically say, we've got to pay for this all. We're passing the buck down to the uh, consumer, which is really unfortunate because that's a whole other discussion. But I don't think the consumer can take much more because anyone who cut the cord of cable like I did, uh, we're watching the pricing of our aggregate streaming services. If you have two or three, I'd say three streaming services at this point, you're basically paying for good cable again. And that's not the objective when I cut my cable services years ago. I have personally cut out Crave TV due to costs. I would have kept it if streaming services in general had not jacked up their prices so many times in the past few years. But it's gotten to the point where I'm like, no, I'm dropping one of these services. I watch them a fair bit, but not enough to, you know, to warrant me paying for four a month. So I drop Crave. And I think you'll see more like that. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I I don't know, Leland, if you want to chime in. But what I do know is that Netflix is the spearhead of every of all of this. You know, they're the OG streaming service. And from what I heard, they were the the most stubborn element of this strike. And, you know, I I, I work in Netflix and, you know, I had a I had a good time. Um, I won't go into it further. But yeah, like it's from I follow Netflix and, and their business model a lot just because of my proximity to, to that company. But I, I'm just hearing so many different things, you know, like from my inner circle who don't work in film. They're like, why is it? Why is the price going up again? Just like what you said. And I think they're just kind of uh, running around with their heads cut off, just trying to figure out how to make a stable business model. Because I think the, the key element to the issue is the fact that they don't really know how to monetize the viewership numbers. And I've heard talks about them starting to sell merch. That's the latest bit of information. <laughs> so it's like I can get a Stranger Things t-shirt um, if I were to pay $30, you know, and they can pocket it. I genuinely heard that bit of news this week. So <laughs> I, I don't know how that's going to work. I don't know if I'm going to go to a, like a e-commerce Netflix shopping cart right, and yeah, yeah. purchase a t-shirt for go 11. To, go to Netflix's Etsy <laughs> shop and get your Strangers Things pin. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm dead serious. And I just thought it was funny, oh, but funny. you just never know. They're, they're like, I think they're really desperately looking for successes in the, in the entertainment industry and they're like hey if it worked for musicians maybe it'll work for us we have a brand i don't know more than that but i don't know like i do know from um moby what you're saying is i feel like you know i'm, I'm not celebrating yet because i feel like there will be some kind of convex reaction from the studios like they already built their new like streaming alliance like it's a oh yeah I heard yeah, that. yeah yeah I don't I don't know any details but I do know that it's sketchy <laughs> we don't know what their intentions are with that it's happening <laughs> it sounds like the League of Evil exactly like. <laughs> and it's like okay here we go again this is part two this is crazy yeah. like what you are you Lex doing Lex Luthor heading up the League of Evil or what <laughs> we'll raise monthly subscription to one million dollars <laughs> billion trillion <laughs> dollars evil. so true. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so it's kind of it's it's a it's a wild west. The streaming right now, it's it's the wild west. I literally have no idea. I hope that they side with the consumers, but this strike has proven you just never know. But yeah, like you know, from the people that I know who don't work in film, all they really want is a fair subscription model, and they're tired of like I don't want ads for six ninety nine per month. I just want the 9.99 that I was paying five years ago and it was lovely and it was perfect and they're trying to balance like the the production costs and and how much con like there needs to be some kind of balance because they're kind of just clueless right now as to how to get there <laughs> yeah and you know what like not not to put down writers or actors at all but Leland and I previously discussed on the show that we both think there's way too much content in this content race that the streamers have engaged on. There's some great stuff. All three of us do love Netflix. I've got, I mean, you know, listener doesn't see because we don't show the video, but like just out of frame, I've got a, a, you know, Netflix poster on my wall. And, you know, I love that show, but for every Netflix, uh, or sorry, every Stranger Things, Netflix puts out five or eight shows that are uninspired, in my opinion, fairly low production values. They seem rushed. I wouldn't say underwritten. I just say rushed. And I know Leland feels similarly. And we're basically forced as the consumer to pay for a mountain of content where we only want the peak. We, we only want a little bit at the top. It just seems like they're they're chasing a red herring and trying to flood their services with content, but it's just not good content. Yeah, and it's just, it's just literally th- throwing the money that went into that content away because it's not doing anything to boost their brand as you put Liz, as they right as they've said uh, as Liz mentioned like Netflix being the if they're trying to sell themselves as this brand of I don't know this I don't know what even they would like purport themselves as this OG streaming service that has always had the content that you've all you fall back on kind of thing right obviously they paved the way for the myriad of services that uh, for a time, it looked like the streaming model was very viable. So, of course, everyone wants to get a piece of it. And now, again, it's like we're kind of really realizing that nobody trying to chase that business model knows how the business model actually works, including the directors of Netflix. And, you know, look at uh, David Zaslav uh, coming back into WB, just gutting HBO Max stuff, right? Like, uh, I don't know. It's just It just seems like a clusterfuck um, everywhere. Who can really complain about a glut of content. You know, if, if there's a shit movie produced, a shit Netflix original movie, I don't really care. If the premise seems interesting, I'll, I'll watch it. And if I don't like it, well, okay, I don't like it. But within that little bubble of my consumerism, that's okay. And the second it steps out of it, which begins to affect their platform themselves, that's where the problem is. And that's where the problem needs to be addressed by the people at Netflix. They need to realize they're putting their resources in the wrong places. It just doesn't make any sense to me that this doesn't dawn at anybody, any of the higher-ups, to make different decisions on some of these projects that are getting produced. Like, for the longest time, it felt like anybody could submit a script to Netflix and they would get their movie made. You know, it could be written in crayons on the back of three playmats from a, ch- a fucking restaurant and someone would green light it at netflix i just it just boggles my mind i don't understand where the decisions are just just name an emotion and you get a show love 
greed, success. <laughs> it's like, you know, just throw one of those th- parenthood, just throw like a one word thing out there and you get a Netflix <laughs> show based off a, a topic. I'm joking, but also semi not. But yeah, I mean, for me, I think Liz has done a good job of painting how unclear the future actually is beyond the next few months, I would say here, if that. So I guess we kind of need to suspend judgment a little bit where this whole thing is going to go. And thank you, Liz. You've done a great job kind of establishing what's going on from, you know, perspective of someone in the industry. Leland, I don't have any more questions on this topic. Kind of future stuff is, is the last talking point I had. Do either of you have any kind of final statements to close out the segment? Uh, I certainly don't. I don't know if uh, if Liz wants to have the last word on the topic before we move on to the next segment. Okay, yeah, cool. I, I feel like we covered a lot. I think just the trajectory in the next few months, I think that's where we were. You know, if you, if you see, you're talking about how there's less content on these platforms at the moment, it's obviously because we just had a four or five month long strike. Um, I feel like production will start ramping up in a month or so in terms of, of, of getting things back to production. And in terms of release, I think 2024 is going to be when the gates open back up and all of the backlog, like these movies, um, Dune and Ghostbusters, you know, they've all been pushed at least, you know, by one quarter into the next year. So I feel like we're going to have like an uptick of big productions in the first half of 2024. And then, you know, the domino effect of the strike, we will see more so after the spring. Back to the the subject of perhaps there's going to be more independent work coming out because, you know, during the strikes, writers were still writing their own work. So I feel like we're going to see a shift in the types of content you know, I work in mostly uh, visual effects post-production, and I know for a fact that things are very hard to, like, we're not really sure where that's go- like, where the trajectory of our types of projects are going to go. Because, you know, if you look at Disney and Marvel, they're cutting back major, major, major projects and... Um, a lot of their, uh, you know, if you look at, at at their their own their own entities, they're they're cutting a lot of their post production for for visual effects. Like um, they they used to own um, ILM is one of the biggest post production and visual effects um, companies. Which you know, I know a lot of people who work for ILM globally. Um, there's a studio here in Vancouver, but I do know that they let go of their entire Singapore office. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So there was three, 400 workers right there. I do know for a fact that I think that's going to be the, the trajectory of, of movies that are like, you know, the Marvel superhero uh, and DC content. Um, there's just a major, it's a questionable period because they let go of the CEO of Marvel. They let go of uh, Victoria Alonso, the, the, the major exec there at um, Marvel. So yeah, it's um again. I think in terms of big productions, it's pretty much the Wild West because a lot of them were on streaming. But if you have the big Marvel movies, like they're pretty much on the same boat because they're controlled and owned by the big studio entity uh, entities that were involved in the strike so much. So I guess we're just gonna wait and see. 
Wait and see. <laughs> Who knows? We may have to call you on again in the yeah, future. I mean, like next year. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to part see. Part two, part two. Exactly, part two. All right, Leland, well, uh, lead us into something fun to, to end us off for today. It's time for Crazy About Cardboard, where, I mean, as Moby kind of set off the bat, we're going to be chatting about getting into Dungeons & Dragons. So, Liz, you have an interest in playing the tabletop RPG? I have always had an interest. I'm just, you know, I, I have anxiety towards getting started. I know certain elements of it. I have so many friends who do it, but I just never put my myself into the space to actually start and do it. So please enlighten me. <laughs> well, yeah, I think Moby and I can both, both chime in. I mean, uh, he and I have definitely ran the game our, our uh, fair share. I know the first time I ever played a, a version of Dungeons & Dragons was with Moby at the, at the helm uh, during the fourth edition era of Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, I was a dungeon master and kind of had to just figure things out. And I've kind of always enjoyed telling stories and writing self-published books and things like that. So I wanted to be a dungeon master. And I mean, we kind of just threw together that first segment all those years ago. I think it was like 2009 that we we started ours and it only went a couple of years there. I'm interested how much of my advice with Leland's overlaps. I'd be surprised if some of it doesn't overlap, but Leland, with Liz starting out, what would be your initial advice to her? Well, it sounds like you won't have a problem finding a group because that's definitely going to be step one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> I mean, I would I would say uh, right off the bat, I mean, if, if you're fortunate enough in finding a patient DM or GM, whoever's running your game, and this obviously applies to any tabletop role-playing game regardless of the system that's going to be a plus and if you can surround yourself with others that know whatever system you're playing that's also going to be a plus but i would just simply recommend knowing your character and focus on your little slice of the game trust me if your whoever's running your game will be absolutely delighted if you even know like the back of your hand 70 percent of what your character can do because in my opinion, a good DM or GM will be able to know that other 30% or at least help you figure out that last 30%. So that would be my starting point is if, you know, obviously you got to find a group. You got to choose what system you're playing. So this is very like overarching advice I think we're giving, right? But Moby, what, what, what would you say? My initial advice is that Liz should, first of all, consider how she is playing a role-playing game. Now, I understand if you've never played a game before that's a role-playing game, you have to kind of research how people even play it. Now, in my opinion, Leland, feel free to disagree with me. You're going to disagree with me if I give you that disclaimer. I already I, disagree. I already disagree. <laughs> I know you do. But it's like, it's like when I have played, I feel players fall into one of two groups. The first group is the actors, and those are people like myself. I primarily play Dungeons & Dragons not to increase stats, level up my character, get in lots of fights. I play it for the social interactions to get to act, because I've never acted as a career, but I've always enjoyed doing it on an amateur level. 
Like I was in basically every play I could get into during grade school. And so like, I want to overcome most challenges, not fighting, but doing skill checks, which is, you know, rolling your 20 sided die, adding some modifiers and seeing like, if you can open, if you can lock pick a door or disable a trap, I enjoy doing that. I enjoy social interactions where you're talking with the dungeon master as if he's a character. And then you also have to roll dice to beat a challenge that he comes up with. So that's my favorite part. So I would never, ever play a character who's like Brutus, the strong brute barbarian, who's just like very normal, strong, silent type, strong and silent type are not two words that would ever be associated (laughs) with me. So so Liz, where you, you mentioned you have these anxieties about getting into the, where do you, where do those anxieties kind of lie exactly? Well, I, from what I know, and I think you just kind of clarified it, there are hierarchies. And as a beginner, it's like, where do I even, what's my part in it? It's like, I know there's, obviously, I know there's role play involved, but as a newbie, like, how do I get to a place of of comfort and, and, and uh, contribution to, to the game? I it's just, I feel like it's so complex and there's this entire culture around it that, you know, I'm, I'm an adult now and it's like, I don't know where to start. It's, uh, it's like, there's just, where do I freaking start? <laughs> in, in my opinion, some of the downfalls of a TTRPG are that it's really, it, it, it can live or die and usually does on the person running the game. Yes. To a lesser extent, the other players at the table, because it just takes one of those people to make the entire experience incredibly sour, incredibly negative. So again, if you already have this kind of friend group that you're already comfortable with, comfortable with socially, that's obviously going to help you a ton. And most of my advice comes from the way I would facilitate a new player as the person running the game, because I'm basically a forever DM. And like uh, my my other um, podcast, The Incursible Party, when we first started, two of the four players had never played before. So the first entire chapter of our campaign one was geared towards teaching them and being kind of more of this educational thing. So I definitely have experience with brand new players. And I think there is absolutely nothing wrong with you being going to your first session uh, at the table and not contributing anything. I don't think even if it takes you one to five sessions to find the type of player that you are. I know Moby, where I disagree with you, Moby, is figuring that out before you get there. I think that's a huge thing that you can figure out while you're playing. And it's it's something that you as a new player can grow into. And you could potentially, after you know maybe playing for a month or two of regular sessions choose the role that you want to be as a player too it's not even necessarily what might be needed at the table that could also just be a discussion you have with the rest of the play group like it could be something that boils down to the mechanics of the system you're doing if you like moby says he would never play a barbarian which mechanically or combat focused especially in a system like dungeons dragons uh versus perhaps maybe you know your stereotypical bard which is more of the talker or the face of the party right the person that's going to be interacting with the most with the NPCs. I don't think you had to have any preconceptions of what your role is going to be the first five sessions you get into that game. I think that's something that it, you would probably benefit most from 
just figuring out in the context of the game. Because like I say, every table is just so different, so different. But a lot of those expectations, though, would come with making sure that all the players at the table have like the, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard the term of the session zero, but that's basically the idea of before the game even is launched or, or before you even play your first session, that everyone, all the players and the person running the game are just made aware of this is the tone of our game. This is kind of where maybe we're going to be a little more combat heavy in our game. Maybe we'll be more role play at this table. Um, so again, a lot of that comes from whoever may be running the system uh, may just also be dependent on the system you're playing. But again, in the context of Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons is predominantly a combat focused set of mechanics, right? That's the majority of the rules. I mean, that's all the rules. It, it really is. It's the, it's the combat. Uh, so if that's something that you want to dive in and just familiarize yourself with the rules of combat, that might just be a decent starting point too. just, familiarizing yourself with with the the different term like the difference between an action and your bonus action or your reaction like those are three big things that will help you go a long way in combat and help you understand what your character does regardless of what class or race you might pick because every one of them falls under you know that's that certain rule set and they all get to do different things utilizing those different types of actions so if you know what a reaction is you're also going to know when and where it's applicable for you to use whatever ability your character might have that uses their reaction kind of thing, right? So there's always the the foundation, but also if you know your DM really well, you don't have to fucking know anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like if you want to be a good player, yeah, 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 familiarize yourself with this. But if you just want to play and you have a good DM, then you can just play and things will roll out and you'll get swept up into the flow of it again assuming the dungeon master is proficient yeah it's it, actually that's a good point leland that was my second point down other than research races and character classes to start i can meet you halfway leland i can say you're right <laughs> like i actually never got to finish my thought because what i was saying is the oh, two sorry. archetypes as i see them it's okay we're 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 rolling there's the actor and then there's also the the gamer or the min maxer there's the person that doesn't really care about, you know, acting and social parts of this game. They really just want to roll dice and be a kick-ass warrior or something like that. And Leland is totally correct that you can figure that out as you go. I mean, you obviously have to pick some sort of character to start, but you can pick a character like, I forget, I think it's the ranger, might also be the rogue, but there's characters that can either be like long distance, like shoot with a bow and an arrow or have like daggers or whatnot for close combat. And you can switch that up as you go. But Leland is correct. Like your actual playing style, you can figure it as you go. My second point that I did have, which is related to what Leland's saying, is hopefully you have a good DM, but with him or her, have a good rapport before the game starts. Ask them, are you going to be more combat focused? Are you going to be more story focused? And it'll benefit you by working around that. We had a situation in that first ever game we played together that Leland's referencing, where everybody, including myself, didn't mind a comedic, a heavy comedic bent to our game. But we ended up having one friend on that party who very much wanted everything 100% serious. 
Like I got to know the game well enough that I could actually create some monsters that were like throwbacks to just parts from a real life, like exaggerated version of past pets or something like that. At one point I had like <laughs> okay. all of our dogs, all of our dogs were characters Aww. at one point okay. that we grew up with, <laughs> but, but I had a friend who hated it and, and he hated it to the point that there was a session where he basically gave up. He just went on his phone. He was a, a pretty introverted guy and he's just like, no, my character's just going to stand here while everybody does everything else. And like, I get where he's coming from. It's fair for him to want to play that style. But to be honest, he was probably playing with the wrong group of people. So you really have two choices. Find a new group where you have to adapt. And my whole point of this is good communication with your dungeon master. Or Leland, you said GM. That stands for game master, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your DM, dungeon master, or GM, game master. Just get to know them. Get to know what they're planning to run. That'll be very helpful. I would also look up some pre-builds for characters. Like say, for example, you're drawn to be a ranger. Look what people are building for ranger online. You can probably find some. Leland, what's the official term for a, a build that's out there that anyone can take like off the internet for a character? Pre-build? Yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, you're, you're, the, the problem with doing something like that is predominantly you find another build that's been put out there. It's because somebody has is a min maxer and has purposely tried to optimize it yes. mechanically. So that might be a problem, but Liz, is there, um, do you have like a, a, a character from movies or, or film that you've always just really loved or, or even maybe as you were younger, maybe great up question. To? I like that angle. Oh my goodness. I, it's funny. Cause the only thing I really have, I'm aware of with D&D is the fact that there are different characters with different, very unique names and different races. <laughs> so <laughs> sure. But even, even outside of like fantasy, like, um, huh. like, okay. I mean, uh, here's a really uh, out there or, or immediate example is like Han Solo. If you want to be like you, if you, Grew up with Star Wars and you loved Hansel. You loved this kind of outlaw with a heart of gold kind of thing. And you want to, like, you can just emulate and you could just play, basically play Han Solo. That's the basis of the character for, like, role-playing, uh, you know, again, setting-dependent, too. You might just be playing a sci-fi game. Yeah. But you could just pick a character from pop culture and base your tabletop character on them. So that might also help you get some of their characteristics and maybe better inform you how the character you're playing might respond to a certain situation. That can be very helpful for people that more of their anxiety comes from the actual like role-playing side of things and interacting with other players or the dungeon master who's voicing, you know, the non-player characters uh, at the table. Cause I think that that can be a big, a uh, big hiccup for people. I mean, people are shy, you know, people yeah. are, they like the idea of a lot of these things, but when in practice, it's it's really easy to to kind of um, kind of close down a bit, perhaps if you're not used to being a little out there. And again, your character doesn't even have to be out there. It could be you don't have to have a voice, you don't have to have a cadence to the way you speak. You know, you can just be you. I mean, a lot of people's first character is literally just themselves when they're role playing. They're they make the decisions that they would make in the game kind of thing. Their, mor their own mor moral compass, they, they abide by that kind of stuff. You're not really restricted to anything, in my opinion. I mean, that's, yeah, that's interesting because, um, you know, I get in my head a bit 
it's, I guess it's naturally how I am, but um, you, you mentioned combat and the fact that, you know, hey, you should consider a character in pop culture. You know, I just think of the three favorites, which are, let's say, you know, female strong characters like uh, Amelie, <laughs> but she, I don't really imagine her in a D&D space. So I pivot now towards, um, you know, someone like Catwoman or, you know, you say Ashoka, like she's in Lara Croft, you know, those kinds of ladies. So, you know, I feel like that would be fitting. So those would be my examples, uh, primarily Lara Croft and Catwoman. I think they're always safe bets for me. Yeah, absolutely. Opinionated, strong. They know exactly what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. Yeah. That kind of, right. They're very capable in any in many in most circumstances they'd be incredibly capable mm-hmm. you know in, in catwoman's case like that could also that type of character could also incorporate some of like that character's backstory yes absolutely. Um, right like whether or not they come from from whether or not they're, they're destitute growing up kind of stuff or you know whatever whatever it might be whatever you might apply that that can also influence kind of your role play i mean you know perhaps you that character would come upon a beggar or something and maybe that character would be more inclined to aid that person uh, rather than just kind of walk by with maybe some of the other party members might and maybe that could you know stir some rp between characters too because i think a lot of times that i mean when you talk about dungeons and dragons the like the end all be all that most people want their table to be is something like critical role which there's there's a there's a phenomena called the Matt Mercer effect. Matt Mercer is the dungeon master of Critical Role. It's a group and a table filled with professional voice actors, and now they uh, their set. You know, there's a lot of money that goes into their set. So like this, that's like the upper echelons of of you know a layman's player's expectation of what the table is supposed to be. Which there's a lot of obviously a lot of pros, positives to the amount the kind the type of content that they create and the way they create it. But obviously, that's not what <laughs> that's not what your tip, your typical D and D table looks like. But I do think a lot of player to player role playing is potentially something that could be missed at some tables that may be more combat focused. Because for me, when when playing these types of games, I am uh, I like the role play more than the actual mechanics of the system. I lean towards that uh, kind of like Moby does. But for me, it's like and again for me running the game. It's watching. I th- my favorite part about playing a, role, a tabletop RPG is when I can sit back and not speak for ten plus minutes because I'm listening and being entertained by the players talking amongst themselves. Like that is the best best thing that as a DM I could hope for is have my players engaged. So good, so good. So you're 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 talking about you know all of the let's say vibes and and the trajectory and the the how things can pan out in a game but i was always curious about what is the objective because you said there's the element of mechanics and role playing you know if it's a game even a tabletop game is there an endpoint and are we all striving to get there like i never understood that element of dnd yes so typically how it works liz is your gaming group uh, i'm just speaking in general terms here but They'll typically go for about three to nine months, maybe playing once or twice a week or maybe once every two weeks, something like that. Um, It all depends. But it's like your group of characters will go through, we'll just call it three to nine month campaign where they'll 
explore a town and hear of some interesting things going on and, you know, go do a few dungeons, fight a mini boss, find out that mini boss works for big villain dude over here. And after that point's done, typically groups will take a little bit of a break. Um, I know Leland just had a huge campaign with his group. I, sh I shouldn't say only. It sounds small, but they went from level 1 to level 12 for his group. That's a long time. But then what typically happens if it's a good group is you'll take a break of a few months just to enjoy life, get back, do other things. <laughs> and then if everybody's into it, you'll jump into a new campaign, you know, a new bad guy. But I mean, that can take a long time. Like Leland, how many episodes your, your character's on level 12, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it like 206 episodes you've done? Yeah. Our campaign one for the incredible party was 207 hour long episodes. So that's a long wow. time. Yeah. And it was like four and a half years of, of a campaign that we were playing. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's quite a long one. And that's actually the first campaign that I've actually finished. But basically, your objective is going to come down to whatever story your dungeon master is I telling see, you. On the I table. See. So when you're creating your character and you're creating your character's background, in, in uh, the example of you know um, coming from being more of a, a kind of a destitute uh, growing up character, perhaps they were estranged or separated from their parents, and that's kind of information that you can give to your dungeon master. And again, depending on the uh, how good your dungeon master is. Maybe somewhere in the story, you will get a clue on to how to find your parents or reunite with a lost loved one and that kind of stuff, right? And and that could always also be in addition to, like, if your character is in a, like, say, Laura, Laura Croft, a Tomb Raider, yeah, that's a perfect setup for, for a, a player, right? That their objective is to just find valuable stuff and find treasure, and they're going to gravitate towards... You know, dungeon crawls and and delving into the underdark to search for artifacts and that kind of stuff. So, so really, the goals and the motivations come from what's set up in the world by the person running the game. So that can be, I mean, obviously anything. It's it's a simple. It's essentially what's what what the game is is you're collectively just storytelling. Is 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 all it is, right? Yeah, and any good dungeon master is going to make the game fun and smooth things over for a new player. I sure as hell did that with Leland and our group to start because they had a disastrous beginning in the opening segment <laughs> of my game where they should have died. They had woken up without their memory in a bunch of coffins in a sealed room and Leland was playing a basic, it's called a dragonborn it's basically like a humanoid dragon and he had a special power that's his fire breath which he can use as a minor move and so waking up in these coffins the whole party without knowing why they're there and it's all scary like what's going on leland used his fire breath well inside a sealed coffin and like <laughs> lit himself in the room on fire and i, and I had to work with that's that. pretty great. like i couldn't have them all die in the literally the first 10 minutes of the game so <laughs> dungeon yeah. masters will, will fuzz rules. Like for example, if you're close to death, they're going to, even if they roll or like a big hit for a monster, because a dungeon master has to do that. Maybe they'll say they rolled a miss just to keep you alive. Like oh, a good okay. storyteller, a good dungeon master will do that. I did that for those guys more than they know. Yeah. I mean, what did they do in, in our campaign? They were supposed to rob a boat at one point and the wizard used a, a low level spell called a magic missile on it, but he rolled a 
20, which is critical success. So it means you have to do something really awesome. So I just had the whole ship blow up like a giant explosion. And I was like, you know, screw you guys. You got to figure it out now without this oh ship. My goodness. So you got, you got to roll with it. And a dungeon master has to be flexible to roll with what happens in the party because you may think the group is going to make certain decisions and they make completely different decisions and keep trying to go in another direction. So I, like Leland said, I mean, a lot of this does rely on having a good game manager. I don't know how much choice you would have in that. I don't know your group of friends, obviously, or or who would potentially lead that group. I would say if you don't know who to lead the group and you've got a particular person who's very set in their ways, likes things organized and to always go to plan, that person should probably be a player and not the dungeon Okay. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there needs to be flexibility on both sides, really. Like, because again, it's like it, the the pitfall for for dungeon masters is to you know what they call railroading their players and basically telling the story that they're writing to their players, where they may as well have just written a book if they wanted to do that. You know, that's that's like the stereo. That's the stereotype. When it's the when it's supposed to be more the the collective storytelling, if the person writing the game has a particular uh, NPC that is supposed to be important, but say you have a what's called a murder hobo at the table, which is a player that just likes to kill everything that they come across, and that NPC dies, now that NPC is no longer around to give them the information that they yeah. otherwise would have had that would have been <laughs> very important to them. So then, but whoever's running the game should just roll with it. Right. Um, mm, okay. Because that's part of the story. It's funny. I mean, maybe that NPC's brother or sister or father seeks out the party uh, for some type of revenge or whatever. And it just spins off in this whole other arc for the players to go through. That's just the best part of it. That's the best part of it. Yeah. I mean, when it comes down to it at its core, what Dungeons and Dragons really is, is a set of rules that you can apply to a story to make certain decisions. Combat, skill ch- skill challenges, which are very similar to combat. You're still rolling die, applying different modifiers, usually like a minus to whatever you roll or a plus to whatever you roll. Basically just facilitating a story that you come up with together. Um, yeah, Leland's totally right about you don't want a dungeon master who railroads people. I once played a different game with a dungeon master and the guy, like he had like really good technology. Like he had his computer attached with an HDMI cord to a wall mounted TV. And he was behind a curtain. Like this guy went all out, but he was very bad with social interactions. And he just wanted to railroad people into one combat after another combat. And to be quite honest, it was less fun because Players need to have, they need to feel they have agency in Dungeons and Dragons. The fun is making choices, good or bad, and seeing how they turn out. And if you have someone that's constantly just trying to deflect you into a certain path, it's it's not that fun. Like Leland said, it's like you might as well just read a book. The only other advice I've got written down is if you know you're going to play by yourself, both a player's guide from the edition you're playing, which I assume is going to be 5e, but also buy yourself some dice. Dice are not that expensive, but you want a full set of role-playing dice. So you'll get a, they call it a D20. So a 20-sided die, a 10-sided die, a 12-sided die, some four-sided die. You're going to need all of those 
it's a lot less fun when you're trying to grab dice from another player every single roll. Plus, it's kind of cool to have your own style dice. You can go on Etsy, eBay. Lots of people make them. I think that's one of the most fun parts is just picking a custom set of dice. And I don't know. I've still got mine. I haven't played in like nine years, but they're in a drawer over there. So, I mean, for a new player, that's probably all the advice I can give. I uh, For me, it's like as simple as showing that you are putting effort into it. You know what I mean? Like just try. And you, again, you don't have to memorize every single rule for the system. Just from the point of view of the person running the game, if I know know my players are putting in like in any amount of efforts to attempt to learn it and or engage with the story, um, assuming the story is engaging. I mean, <laughs> if it's not and you're not having a fun time, you need to find a new table. But like really it's just, just put in, just attempt to learn your character um for i mean i'm just i am surprisingly patient with new players maybe not as patient as i am in my real life (laughs) than i am at the table so again that's just where my advice comes from that's so cool liz uh, at this point do you have any any kind of questions final questions about starting out with the character i mean i'm just fascinated like you painted a picture You, you both painted a picture that was um so different from what i expected because, you know, obviously I work in film and I, I have a writing background and I'm a performer. So this sounds like it's in my wheelhouse. <laughs> and I, ha- I <laughs> right. hadn't realized it the whole time. And it's like I have all these friends who play it who work in film. Now it just makes complete sense. Uh, I think the only question I have <laughs> is, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I took a ton of notes. I'm going to delve into this on my own time. But from your point of view, are there any no-no's? that a dm should be aware of or or a player like you should not consider doing that it seems like there's no rules per se from what i got out of this conversation but are there certain things that any player whether they be a dungeon master or a character that they should avoid great question i'm pondering that leland do you have anything to say off the bat i think i have a couple things percolating but I referenced the murder hobo. If you could avoid being a murder, a murder hobo at the table, unless murder again, hobo. the entire table. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like if you avoid making a character that just likes, will just straight up kill and attempt to kill anything or anybody they come up across again, assuming that the rest of the table doesn't want to play a game like that. You should definitely avoid being that. I, I don't know. There's, it's like, it's kind of, it's a social situation. So anything that you would think of as being like toxic behavior in a social situation, honestly just applies to it, right? It's a, you're, you're hanging out. If you, if you are going to play a character that is maybe a little more standoffish, then I would just simply, uh, at the table, make it clear to everybody at the table that when you say something, you are speaking in the voice of your character. Because I don't think there's anything wrong with having a character that is maybe a little more aggressive or, a little, or, or uh, even, even cruel to some of the other players. But as long as everyone at the table is realizing that that is coming from the character and not the player, and I think that would be especially important if you were playing with a new group of people that you didn't know as well, uh, or maybe have just meeting for the first time, I think that's something that's incredibly important. That makes sense. I would assume there would be at least one person itching to be a murder hobo. (laughs) (laughs) Just to spice things up. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm like, well, can't there just be a character that kills everyone? Exactly where my head went. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? Well, I mean, see, the thing is, you're supposed to pick an alignment, and it's like you can be good, lawful good, chaotic good. There's neutral. There's like chaotic neutral. There's all these alignments, and it's when you get into like chaotic evil specifically, which is the worst. Chaotic evil is is the murder hobo archetype that Leland's talking about, where it just kills everyone, and it's just it's really hard to get a consistent story going when that person is trying to kill important people. I think a couple things. I think if you have a good DM, they have a they should have a good story in mind. So don't constantly be trying to fight them on everything. Like, you know, if they're painting you a story of a beautiful gothic castle with vampires flying around and you see the shimmering of gold and gems coming out of the windows, like take a hint that maybe you should go there instead of just trying to escape out a side door to like leave the town and go do something else. It's, it's kind of like that saying, read the room literally. Like there's obviously something good and important to the story if you go there. So don't fight it. And you don't seem like the kind of person to be a backseat driver for other players' turns, but don't do that. Let them explore their agency. One of the most fun parts about D&D is it's not just about winning and pulling off heroic moves. It's about laughing at yourself and the rest of your group when something fails epically. It's it's meant to be fun. It's meant to be funny. That's why I think that friend of mine who took it a little bit too seriously when we played, I think he's missing some enjoyment of the game there. Because, yeah, the failure is part of the fun. It really is. You might sit down to be a player and find that you really your true calling is to be the one running the game. And I think those few, those people are, are far fewer and far between than the, than what they should be. Uh, but you never know. You never know with, with, you know, your storytelling background, you might find that you want to be in the driver's seat and you want to be the one reacting to the, that's what I always feel like. It feels like at surface value, the players are reacting to whatever the dungeon master is doing, but I always feel like it's the other way around. I feel like in the head of the table, you're always reacting to what the decisions the players are making and trying to facilitate everybody's fun, including your own. So you might just find that that is where you would feel the most comfortable uh, to, to, to be at. But uh, I'm excited to, for you to play your first game. It's really, really, really cool. It really is time. I'm, um, yeah, I've been, <laughs> been itching for a new hobby and it's, uh, pretty clear that this would be now especially that this is in my wheelhouse i just never thought so um but yeah i think it's pretty epic that you know you just explain how vast it could be and how exciting it could be and the fact that there's essentially no rules which i love <laughs> um yeah who knows maybe now that i have the time i can end up being a dm um yeah good good <laughs> awesome excited Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well, hopefully you take that enthusiasm forward and get an actual uh, session on the go there and, and have a lot of fun. So you kind of just got to dive in, right? Like just diving in the deep end of a swimming pool cliche. Just get in there and let's do it. <laughs> you know, yes, absolutely. Just do it, right? Like <laughs> Nike. Just just do it. Yes. Just do it. Swish. So. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on, Liz. I mean, this was an absolute pleasure. Uh, we certainly love having new guests on and getting to to know and speak with somebody new. Um, do you have any socials or any anything you'd like to plug uh, where people might be able to find find you or something you've done? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm I'm now that I'm back on the uh, performing end in front of the camera, I'm trying to amp, you know, really get that all amped up. Like right now I'm not on socials, but I'm going to get everything up and running so that when things get back back up, it'll be ready. My I just have an Instagram, Liz R S N A. It's one word. Hopefully, you know, as things roll out and the strikes wrap up, that I'll start promoting some projects. So you can give me a follow there to follow. Hey, what happens after somebody leaves, you know, the production side going into in front of the camera after a major strike? So hopefully I'll start expanding my social media platforms from there. Um, maybe sprinkle in some D&D. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see from there. It's going to be an interesting journey post-strikes in the next few weeks. So thank you for having me on. It's been epic and, you know, it's, uh, I learned so much. I have a ton of notes for my, my new DMD career. Thank you for having me on. It's, it's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks so much, Liz. It, it really was, uh, was an awesome uh, episode there. So really appreciate your time and with all the prep and everything like that. So speaking of finding us, Leland, where can listener find us? Our website is ttpopcast.com, the T-Hud podcast on Facebook, ttpopcast on Instagram. I'm Leland underscore Steel on X, and that is who I've been. And I'm Moby, and with that, I will lead out as always with take care, listener. Thanks, listener. Bye-bye. This has been a Sounds of Steel production.